Well, hello, Chris. Hey, John. And welcome to episode 27 of the Saul Searching Podcast, where I intend to discuss with you the latest episode of Better Call Saul. This episode being called Off Brand oh. and being directed by Keith Gordon and written by Ann Cherkis. Okay. So what do you think of my intentions? I'll go along. All right, cool. Does the name Keith Gordon mean anything to you? I'm afraid not. He played the lead in Christine. Oh. You remember the kind of nerdy kid that Oh yeah. that bought Christine and rehabbed her and stuff? Sure. He's gone on to be a a director of he's directed several films and I think he mostly works in television now. There's a cinematic quality to this episode that I do think having someone who's a who's a sure hand at just putting a film together competently. I think you can kind of feel that in this episode. Well, I'm glad to know that he's alive and well because I liked him back in Christine as that kind of a unlikely hero, and I'm glad to know that he uh, got over his uh, dark period and and awful addiction to his evil car that caused him so much trouble. I think a lot of us have something like that in our past that is, you know, a relationship with a, an evil car or a cursed building right. or a possessed person or something. To the point that you get dark circles and everything. Your friends don't know you anymore. No, I think he's fine now. But best case scenario, you move on, become a uh, TV director. It's awesome. Right. That is the best case scenario. That being said, well-made episode, well-written episode, as usual, a very well-acted episode. I, I began to feel as we sat down to watch this one, though, that the challenge of this episode was to take what could very well be a transitional chapter of the story and do something interesting with it. Yeah. And um, by that, I just mean we had fireworks last week. And nothing else on the show was quite ready for another big reveal. I mean, we we've been sort of stoking the fires of the Gus-Mike relationship, but we haven't quite seen that blow up. And we see that the Hector-Gus relationship is getting more uh, volatile, but we haven't seen that blow up, and that's not ready to blow up. So it was a big question, what could they do in this episode that would seem momentous? I think that uh, you're right, it feels a little more transitional, but that's okay because it was entertaining. It, it kind of felt to me like last week did basically uh, wrap up the trial and the big uh, development of it, and, you know, they put a cap on that this week by telling us exactly the, the result. But the the main gist this week of uh, several stories, I think, was here's a reset. You know, we're we're resetting Chuck. What's he going to start getting up to in a new life? And we, we kind of reset Jimmy and, and, and reset uh, 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 just uh, Nacho gets a, a sort of a new story going again. And so it's like uh, it's a point of new beginnings. In the episode, when Howard is talking to Chuck, he says, you're at a crossroads. Yeah. Wait, was Keith Gordon in Crossroads? Who who was in? That was Ralph Macchio. <laughs> Ralph Macchio. Okay, never mind. That would have been great. That would almost be odd because you'd be like, did they plan that? Right. I know. That's why I was so excited I had to say it out loud. Well, in this episode, all the characters are at a crossroads. Get me Keith Gordon. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as far as the crossroads theme goes, yes. Uh, Nacho, I wouldn't say we're really resetting Nacho so much as we're catching up with him, but we are seeing kind of where he is, and I started thinking in the first scene where we see Nacho's inclined to be a little bit more lenient with Crazy 8 when he brings in the sort of paltry amount, but it doesn't really fly with Nacho, but you can see he wants to be forgiving, but Hector sort of goads him and says, who works for who, huh? You know, without really looking up from his paper. Right. You sort of see how the structure works there, and even before Nacho went out and grabbed Crazy 8 and dragged him through and, you know, beat the shit out of him, I was thinking how stressful it would be to work 
for someone like Hector Salamanca. Even if you were Nacho and you're sort of like you've got the the courage and the bravado and the toughness and the know-how to sort of navigate this world to a point that I was thinking how much it would suck to have that situation where it could just go volatile at any moment. You know, you're with this guy who, as much as Hector seems to have found some way of working that has gotten him this far, we see what a volatile, vindictive, mean-spirited person he is at almost every turn. So, yeah, I was already thinking, man, it must be tough to be Nacho um, before the episode really made that explicit by showing that Nacho has a real conflict uh, of whether to sell out his dad's legitimate business, which seems to be like maybe even a point of pride for the family, um, you know, to sell that out in the name of making Hector happy. Right. That's what I think is his crossroads for this. His, his new development is, wow, are you going to let your nice, innocent dad get mixed up in all all this business? But I thought Nacho was being pretty hard on, on Crazy 8 to begin with. I was like, oh, boy, he's such a badass. But... um. Hector was like, no, you got to be 12 times harder than that. So shows you it's tough. It's tough to be nacho. You know, he's not the kinder, gentler drug dealer. He's just not the same as Hector. He's not the same as Gus. I don't know that we really know nacho yet. The one thing we know is that he loves his father and he works hard for him. And so, yeah, that part seems particularly uh, crucial to what's the thing that would be like a sticking point for Nacho? Like, why would Nacho say, okay, no more? And I think at the end of the episode, we start to get a little clue. Uh, not mm-hmm. only does Hector having uh, an attack in front of his men sort of underline how vulnerable he really is, you know, and how much he needs people like Nacho to to sort of bolster his authority and his power, but also with uh, Hector dropping the pill and Nacho picking it up, we have a real bit of visual shorthand of Nacho maybe hatching an idea of how to how to hurt Hector, how to poison Hector, how to withhold his medication, something, yep. you know, that is going to be his answer to, to how to avoid uh, ruining his father's legacy. What I had thought was, oh, you can easily uh, take that capsule apart and put poison in instead, but what you can do and have much less... Uh, problem with uh, much less potential of getting in trouble is uh, empty the capsule and replace the innards with uh, uh, flour or sugar. And uh, then there's no poison in his system, but he died from not getting his pill uh, quick enough. But I thought it was just an interesting, it almost was like a meditative story, the way we start off with Nacho and the way we see his, his you know, b- handling that situation roughly because Hector wants it that way. Um I thought that the in that in that in that cold open shortly after he beats up Crazy Eight when we see him working in his father's shop and we see there's this weird kind of peace there, and the, even the lighting in there it's all lamp lit and it's very warm and it feels kind of old world. The notion of him getting snagged in the thread, you know, as or as he was working, it got me to thinking. Okay, he kind of stitched himself into the seat and it you know cut his hand, and so I was wondering like what is that visual metaphor but at the end of the episode the phrase uh, he he got his blood in his work just came to my mind and i was thinking like it's an interesting twist because you, he got his blood in his work in the sense of he was he bled on the upholstery in that opening scene but at the end of the episode what hector's asking him to do is to involve his blood in his work mm-hmm. by getting his father involved in the trade and so i don't know if that's what they were going for but that was something that felt like a, a neat kind of bookend right no, that that makes more sense than what I had, which was just you know I just thought mm, well it's it's good to be reintroduced to the to the shop and to see the upholstery shop and the dad just briefly anyway, um, and that maybe they just put the sewing machine accident in there to 
to uh, make it a, an exciting scene instead of a instead of a boring scene, but also just to underline, wow, this guy is incredibly tough. Because you'd be screaming your head off. Any any human, I think, would just about die from pain with a needle going through their web like that. But uh, yeah, maybe the symbolism you're thinking of is is what they're trying to get in there. It was also a sign of this work and how different it is from his other work, but how it also yeah. involves him doing stuff with his hands and being patient and having this forbearance that we know him to have, you know? And then to say, yes, um, that there's like a, a hiccup and a mistake is made and and it, you know, in this case, I guess maybe it ruined the work he was doing. I guess once you've bled on the fabric, you can't just keep working. So maybe the implication there is just one little mix-up, one little mistake, and... And everything you've done is gone, yeah. which could also be a metaphor for his father's business. All the years he spent, um, you know, establishing it, and now something could happen that could kind of totally destroy it. Yep. Uh, so while we're talking about the sort of drugs and guns portion of the show, I guess we can briefly mention the um, other players in that world that we got a little taste of. Now, Mike seems to be about as far from that world as possible. He's at a uh, like a survivor's support group with Stacy talking yeah. about and she's there to talk about Maddie but he's there I guess just to support her and then there's this little suggestion that he might help construct the church playground for yeah. the kids and that it has to do with pouring concrete which on this show you do think is there going to be a body disposed of in this plot line <laughs> um, and then you think back to uh, you know, she brings up that uh, Maddie talked about a, a carport that uh, Mike built or made when he was when Maddie was a kid, and it seems that Mike doesn't remember it or is feigning not remembering it. And I didn't know if there's a story there. What did you make of that? Did it just seem very much on the surface, or did it seem like there was some implications or suggestions of other other plot lines there? Yeah, I don't know if he maybe acted like he didn't remember it because he didn't want to talk about it because, uh, you know, he buried a union boss there <laughs> or if um or if he genuinely just forgot although that's just not really tv language but i do think in real life you could have poured a concrete drive uh 27 years ago and you could have forgotten all about it you know um so who knows but i i did feel like uh once we caught up to them in that meeting it did make me say, oh, well, that's a very good explanation for what Mike's tears were about last week is just sitting there grieving Maddie, just saying, you know, why am I here and my son isn't here? He should be uh, here, uh, uh, you know, having family time with his wife and kid. And uh, it's, you know, I feel partially responsible for his being gone and, and uh, I'm just missing my son. I mean, I think what we're talking about here is an amazing subtlety in Mike. And well, I was going to say Mike's, but really Jonathan Banks gradations of of hangdog, you know, because on his best day, Mike is hangdog. He's always carrying that weight around with him. And then when he's around them, it's just a huge reminder of why, like what you said, why am I here? No, right. You know, to say nothing of the circumstances of Maddie's death, which he feels guilty about, but just the fact that I'm here and my son is not. And, you know, when he's talking to uh, Stacy, it wasn't a huge scene, but the way she's able to share with him something of the way his son felt about him, it's like she knows the story of why Maddie's dead, and she knows how culpable he is in that. He told her the truth. 
So she's trying to give Mike this warm feeling about the way Maddie thought of him, you know? And so to me, it could just be that that scene is there to just show the warmth of this family connection that's warming up and that Mike, that he could see it as something at stake, you know? But otherwise, it really does seem like Mike is off on his own little island. And it's hard for me to picture what it is that would make this version of Mike that we're seeing, what would make him take any kind of, uh, uh, you know, illegal work were it not something financial that I just don't see at the moment. Yeah. Like, why would he suddenly get greedy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've we've posited that maybe he uh, just feels an emptiness and wants to be in the world of action-adventure. That's one way for him to just say yes to a call from Gus. But you never know with Mike uh, also if they're just going to say, okay, we're, we're putting it off another six months until he gets involved with Gus. And in the meantime... He's uh, trying to build the church playground, and some guys give him some trouble, and he goes on a revenge mission against the guy's brother. You know, who knows what they're going to get into. Maybe Mike is heading into a mundane phase, but I would be surprised if there's not some reason. They they aren't typically that careless that they don't aren't laying the groundwork for something. Right, right. No, it, it ends up contributing to things. But either way, it seems that it, what we're supposed to take away from this is that Mike is is trying to exist in that kind of nether region between the life that is sort of calling out to him and and the life that he feels he doesn't really deserve or feels that he can never really have. That was poetic. So let's talk a little bit about the stuff we got with Gus in this episode, which part of me says was a necessary step in showing the development of Gus's character as he might be one of our new leads on the show. But part of me thought this was an example of just total prequelitis, but really well executed. I mean, I suppose if you're going to develop Gus at this point, you're going to say, well, when does he when does he start building the super lab? Uh, it only took a minute. And I think that, and you have to tell it at some point if you're going to if you've decided we're going to put the laundry in the lab in the show and you've decided we're going to put Lydia in the show, um, then you have to reveal them at some point. And so uh this episode, with all its new beginnings, is as good as any to just take a, a, a pretty short moment to say, oh, look, there's the place. He's going to buy it. Whoa, there's her. She's his, his uh, right-hand woman. I'm not even saying it wasn't cool. It was cool okay, to good. see <laughs> that location, and it was cool yeah. to, to imagine or what I thought was, can Gail be far behind? If we're actually seeing the Super Lab on this show, are we going to get to see that little lovable character brought oh, back? yeah. So, like, maybe we see him brought in as sort of comic relief. I'm torn because I love seeing these old faces again. I just have to ask the question, is it, is it as interesting and as necessary as Kim, Chuck, these characters that this show has kind of invented and brought to the fore? I would hate to see this show feeling like that's the best they can offer, that that's where the juice is, is in reminding us of scenarios and characters that we knew already, when I think the real gold is in you know, the new frontiers that this show has managed to explore. Uh, I'm depending on them to pick and choose um, characters who, uh, from the old show, who um, you just feel like have the potential to be good on this show in that, you know, oh, maybe this is a good character, fun to watch, and could have been developed a lot more, and we would like to see them developed more. You know, that person gets to be on this show. And, uh, you know, somebody else but that doesn't mean you just pick every random person who's like yeah that's not really going to work we don't need them or it's not going to help the entertainment value you don't bring them over you know i I just like to think that they've they've processed all all that 
uh, with uh, entertainment and good storytelling in mind rather than just, okay, let's bring over everybody we can uh, so that we get the most, uh, uh, you know, people coming back from Breaking Bad. I don't think they have to uh, worry that way, and I, I like to think they wouldn't. I think this was a very enjoyable uh, hour of television, primarily because it did seem to start so many new things in motion. So for all the callbacks, there are new things, too. Like, I I guess I'll just throw this question out to you. What the heck's going on with Chuck? Are we to take it at face value that he's really just trying to get better now? Or are we to assume that something is driving that that is, as usual, kind of dark and and maybe vindictive? What do you think of Chuck? (laughs) Yeah, I'll... I like the I like both of those together that maybe he has said to himself uh all right it is time for a new beginning I'm going to uh start uh, gripping batteries and see if I can get over this and I'm going to call my old uh uh psychologist psychiatrist whatever you have and uh see if I can make a new start but knowing Chuck it may very well be that all that is in plan. Hey, I'm going to uh, get out of this rut, get better, so that I can be fully present to exact a really fantastic revenge on Jimmy. They already played with our expectations of Chuck a couple times. So I wonder if that just means the lowest we'll ever see Chuck go was last episode, or if this is, as you've sort of just elucidated, sort of a long, drawn-out effort to confuse us about Chuck's intentions before revealing that he does have something up his sleeve. I didn't know how right. to take any of that, though. And I wonder if now that Chuck is doing something that's not duplicitous, I'm finally like not trusting anything he does. Whereas, you know, before this season, I was I bought into all of his ruses, uh, hook, line and sinker. Maybe I'm overcompensating. No, I think he's I think he is set up now to be more of a villain, but still a human because he's now you've got a villain who's trying to overcome hardship and improve himself, which is something we can root for anybody uh, to do. And uh but also he is probably going to be playing the even longer con of like, okay, now how am I going to uh, make sure that Jimmy never practices law again? Before we leave the subject of Chuck, I wanted to talk some about Rebecca in this episode. And I'm sort of torn on Rebecca. I feel like she has a great moment early in the episode. It's a very eerie scene. The, the score was very eerie as Kim was giving her final remarks on Jimmy, where she's basically making the case for Jimmy's elder care practice and his sincere attempts to be a positive force in the community and all of that. I believe Chuck just left. Rebecca follows him. And when she gets to the house, he's not answering the doorbell. uh, And it's intercut with Kim's remarks about Jimmy. So it's hard to sort of really enjoy or take at face value the positive things she's saying about Jimmy when we're seeing the sort of trauma that Chuck is going through. And then to see that Rebecca rightfully feels used by Jimmy. But also, I think there's something in her indignation at Jimmy that felt to me a little bit unearned. I mean, here's a woman who was not part of Chuck's life and didn't know about his disability. I mean, Chuck kept it from her, but... You know, she wasn't in his life enough to drop by and see the predicament that he was in. So I guess what I'm just saying is it seems a little too little too late for Rebecca to be painting herself as Chuck's champion uh, to me personally. But I, I will say that still within that, it hurt to see Jimmy be so petty, even though I realized it would be really bad drama if he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That it, it is better story-wise to have him be as cold as he can be right now, even though you, you want to see him go right back to being like, oh, 
Chuck, okay, let's go take care of him. <laughs> you know, take care of my brother. But haven't you also felt that that's a necessary step for his character to like, at some point he has to be the, like at the end of the first season after Chuck called him a chimp with a machine gun, I thought Jimmy was done with Chuck, you know, because uh, Ernie started taking over his, uh, his grocery list and stuff. So I thought at the time, Jimmy's done with Chuck. And then when they spent a whole season of him still kind of vacillating between being done with him and trying to hurt him and get vengeance on him and help him. And this season, it was like another little slow burn. So now we're finally at the point where it seems like they have to pay this plot off and say, well, now for the foreseeable future, Jimmy is not there for Chuck. I hope we see more of Rebecca on the show. I hope we see more about their relationship that she becomes a bit of a of someone for Chuck to interact with. Because at this point, he's got Howard. And the one thing I noticed in this episode was just Howard uh, really seems to be, for whatever it's worth, Chuck's friend. And, you know, it was almost touching that he hung around and, and presented himself to Chuck as just like a, let's view this as a victory, let's move on, you know, as opposed to the way it seemed it was going at the end of last episode with, with Howard's face souring, I thought we were going to see much more of a confrontation between the two men, where Howard almost writes Chuck off, but that did not happen. Yeah, who knows? But he's still supporting him right now, and I, I, I like that place that they're in, story-wise. The real focus point of that opening section was that it appears to be a win for Jimmy. He and Kim are celebrating joking about St. Jimmy, the way she painted him in her closing argument. And and it's a very short-lived moment of celebration because that's when Rebecca comes in. And then we see Jimmy, kind of once again, Jimmy not at his best. Jimmy uh, uh, back on his heels just a little bit with, with what he's got to deal with here. He even says, Chuck's not my brother anymore. Did you relate to Jimmy in that moment? Or did you think, oh, he's gone a shade too far? Well, both. I mean, I can totally see that uh, uh, someone who's just gone through this whole story would do what he did. You know, it doesn't mean it's right, and it doesn't mean I wasn't rooting for him to keep grounded and say, well, your brother is still your brother. You still got to take care of this person. Uh, but, uh, you know, I could totally relate and say, well, of, co- of course, after all this, he's he's broken and, and says, I don't even want this guy in my life. He goes from this kind of existential, what have I done? Was it the right thing? Uh, should I be celebrating this a humiliating moment for my brother, all of that, it starts to become subsumed in his desire not to totally lose the money that he spent on advertising for, you know, the Gimme Jimmy series of legal ads that are designed to draw people to his elder care practice. So uh, how did you feel about just that general reveal of taking Jimmy through every step of his scheme, the first which was to sort of door-to-door go into businesses and sell them on his services of making them a commercial so that he could give them the ad time? And stay within the legal parameters of not being able to sell the ad time, which I think the 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 local affiliate wouldn't allow him to resell the ad time or something. So it was right. a very tricky situation. Right. And it became about him recouping most of his money that he'd already spent. So in that sense, very, very low dramatic stakes for a show like this. But it turned into a very interesting kind of adventure for Jimmy. And I feel like it took us from that moment of at the beginning of him at his worst, saying Chuck's not my brother, through a couple of false starts and a pretty desperate hard sell with the people at the carpet store to a kind of epiphany that to me just felt like, okay, a shaft of light shining from the clouds in terms of where this show is headed and what this show is trying to do. I felt like it was a pretty crazy, surprising whole development, basically, that because the entire show we've been wondering, um, how does he go from Jimmy McGill the lawyer to Saul Goodman the lawyer? And then, you know, the show hems and haws and takes you on a, an entertaining adventure uh, as you wait 
And then the new surprise is, oh, there's a stage where he goes from Jimmy the Lawyer to Saul Goodman, the local commercial producer, which is something we just wouldn't have had occur to us at all. And I just think that there's going to be a little period here, whether it's two episodes or or seven or or what, where that's a part of his life is – kind of this weird side venture and makes it seem like even more of a puzzle. How does he go from uh, Saul Goodman uh, Productions Incorporated or whatever to Saul Goodman Attorney at Law? Uh, It's just a a real uh, head-scratcher for me. But it was fun. I mean, I I, I like seeing him in a uh, goofy venture like this because uh, we get to enjoy... Uh, Bob Odenkirk, you know, in the same way that we enjoyed him when he was making his commercials with his little crew earlier. It's just a a, a wacky little daily caper uh, with with no life and death stakes. Yet. Yet. I'm of two minds when it comes to the life and death stakes on this show. I have read references to the writers suggesting that they sort of discovered a new tone with this show. Yeah. And therefore... My thought was, well, maybe the show will never have to be as life or death as as we thought it might get, right. or as the the presence of the sort of drug world characters in the narrative would suggest that it's going to get, you know. Mm-hmm. And we've always been waiting for that moment when the when the two plot lines kind of coalesce into one. Uh, uh, and I don't know. At this point, I'm wondering they could keep the show bifurcated for a long time, where it's a while before Jimmy is involved in any of the super criminal stuff. But even within that, the worst thing we saw happen in this episode was a guy get beaten up. It was pretty, you know, unpleasant the way he was begging and screaming and getting beaten and everything. Yeah. But it wasn't murder. So I'm wondering if this show has has just staked out a slightly softer tone or if it's just going to be more more of a special event when something truly gruesome does happen. Because it's not like deaths haven't happened in the past. We just haven't had a major character get killed in a really notable way. Um, but there are enough characters that we know something bad happens to them that are in the, the mix. So it's just an interesting set of options as far as how far those stakes can go. But for a lot of the characters, the life and death stakes are, are non-existent because we know they survive. So that makes you think about the Kims and the Chucks and maybe even the Nachos, that we don't really know what happens to them. I mean, we know that at the time of when we first meet Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, he thinks Nacho might be out there. But we don't know if he is correct in thinking Nacho could be out there. They could end a plotline with Jimmy thinking Nacho is alive, but we know he's dead or something. So there's no reason to think that anybody makes it out of this alive except for the characters who, of course, have to. Right. So, yeah, it does seem a little bit like we're a long way from that vibe, that stakes, when we talk about Jimmy, you know, uh, thinking on his feet with his film crew to put together a commercial. But I just loved the silliness of what they came up with, given that we know he was trying not to put his mug up there, but he didn't have time right. to, like, find somebody else. He asked right. other people. They answered all the questions that we w- we might have come up with of why didn't he just go with someone else? Yeah. Um, or why didn't he find someone? But he was on a time crunch, and he didn't want to waste the money. He didn't want to lose the money. That's the thing that was brilliant about it, is right. that it was such a little petty amount of money that he was trying to recoup, um, with the consequences of running a legal ad, I guess, being pretty severe if it seems like a violation of the terms of his... Of his suspension, right? But no, I thought I thought that played out really well. But I agree with you; it did feel like a little side adventure 
that just felt like it was in a slightly more sprightly comedic zone that I remember early on in the show, it seemed like we might be getting a lot more of that type of thing. And how long is it going to go? And then how in the world? We st- we still have no clue. It, it just seems it makes it seem like even more of a question how he then uses uh, the name Saul Goodman in, in, in practicing law when he does manage to come back to practicing law. Or it could be that Saul Goodman becomes such a profitable identity that Jimmy more and more adopts this persona of, well, I mean, like, you know, they've already started talking about him like he's a different person, because even though we know it's just Jimmy in a silly <laughs> goatee and, and right. borrowing the ball cap from the camera guy and sunglasses, it couldn't be a cheesier disguise, you know. And maybe um, now that he's got this little uh, alter ego, maybe he does just start during this year advising people on on the law and kind of going by Saul Goodman, you know, advising criminals, but not... Uh, just you know, certainly not not taking uh, any either either not taking any money or, or only taking money under the table. Well, it seems like he could do a lot of that sort of thing under the table, especially if it's for a criminal enterprise anyway. But even if he just starts adopting this persona to get him out of certain situations and becomes a certain kind of brash version of himself, I think it will be fun to see that evolve into the Saul that we know, especially if it's as funny as just that little snippet was. I mean, I thought that commercial was just too good for words. I mean, I know it's silly and it's in the zone of like almost a a Mr. Show or Tim and Eric sketch, but I thought it was a perfect elucidation of the way that I think at times Jimmy's aesthetic is Bob Odenkirk's aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. He's coming down at the last moment and figuring out what to do, and, and he says to the makeup girl, crack open your magic bag, I'll have to curl off this thing. And uh, and you know, like, okay, he's going to put on some crazy disguise. But, I, you know, I, I wondered why they didn't say Lon Chaney. I think uh, Lon Chaney Sr. is known for the, as being a master of a thousand faces or, or whatever. But uh, Karloff, you know, he's Frankenstein. I'm sure he has, you know, some looks, but... Uh, Maybe they just thought uh, not enough people know Lon Chaney anymore. I don't know. But the other thing is uh, when he's showing the commercial to Kim and he says, the guy at the station said he's never seen so many star wipes in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And like we broke a record or something, you know. They said it's never been done. (laughs) It's it's never been done. But with a rather proud, droll tone, you know. Well, I mean, it almost seems like he knows better than to really be proud of that. But he is sort of, even in knowing this is, as he says, not his best work and it's cheesy, there's something about it, like that hustle that he showed (laughs) putting this together. Like, I loved seeing it. You know, I love seeing Jimmy have that kind of moxie and that kind of, he gets this crew together, this, you know, these knuckleheads that that he calls every time. It's just so great. And I thought the way that you could see Kim having that great mixture of bemusement and and admiration at Jimmy because she's like, you did all this today? <laughs> right. When she's not worried about how is this going to reflect on your legal career and how is this going to blow back on me for being with you, I think she has a lot more uh, leniency with the way that Jimmy does things because she kind of admires his ingenuity. At least that's how I read that last scene is that she thought it was kind of funny and and sort of gets it about this other person, this Saul Goodman in the commercial. She says, this guy has a lot of energy. Right. <laughs> and then Jimmy says, yeah, it's just a name. You know, and then she's there's a beat where he takes a sip of his beer and then she goes, huh. And that's the end of our episode. So, I mean, once again, I can't help wondering how much Kim is going to be right there beside him through a lot of his transformation. Well, I think this is an important setup moment that they have, too, where, um, um, you know, he he rallies to keep the office and says, um, you know, the day I can't pay my half is... uh, you know, then we'll think about closing it down. But, um, and so that just is a perfect setup for, 
you know, in another two months, uh, uh, for whatever reason, he's going to need to be hustling. He's going to really want to find money however he can. And, uh, you know, if it's by doing something unsavory, then so be it. Right. Which seems like that's the obvious thought. That, that, the one thing I was going to say to you before we wrapped it up was just the question of what do you see them doing this year, this year-long suspension? Do you think we'll ever get a time jump? Do you think there will be enough shenanigans and chicanery in between now and the end of that fictional year where where Jimmy can get involved in things without actually practicing law? Like, where do you see that going? I don't know. I never know how to predict the show, but I do feel like... Um a good thing to try maybe and it seems like they really might do this is a year from now they uh, uh, they have him get his license and he can start practicing again and in the interim they just tell the amount of story where they can say alright this, this episode takes place and then three weeks later it's this and then one and a half months later it's this episode you know so that they can justify that a year passed um and that these story fragments add up. Either way, they've created like an interesting storytelling problem for themselves of how do you do your show about a crooked lawyer who's not a lawyer. We just have to accept that we're along for the ride on this one. I agree with you. It's very hard to predict. Well, I got nothing else. What about you? Uh, I think uh, we talked about everything I wanted to talk about. Okie dokie. Hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.